Uh, good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, that kind of leads us into the series that we're starting this morning. Uh, do you ever feel like that? Maybe you're sitting in church or maybe a class or small group and you feel like the person who's talking about the Bible is using really big words and you're like, what on earth do they mean? Uh, so, okay, that's what we're going to kind of kick around sometimes in the church world. Uh, people that are called pastors like me uh, can sometimes use words that, what do they mean? So we're going to take uh, six weeks to talk about the basics of the Christian faith, kind of looking at the orthodox Christianity and taking, okay, what are the foundations of the Christian faith? And then let's make sure they're intelligible to us, we can understand them, and we understand then why believing that is important and what it leads to in life. Now, a couple of things, uh, page 39, if you're in a reading plan, that's where you'll find place to take some notes. If you're not in a reading plan, feel free to grab one, they're in the foyer. The other thing I just want to make a note of, if you look at the front of your bulletin, you're going to see the six areas of general theology that we're going to talk about. Uh, Bible, God, Jesus, people, salvation, and eternity. Now, if you're uh, sitting there and thinking there's a lot more to talk about, there is a lot more to talk about. Uh, We had to try and boil a lot of subjects into a short period of time. But there is one that you probably would say should be on there, and I would agree with you. And if you, some of you take a look at that and you say, I've been around church while I know that it's probably should list the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit because in January, we're going to take three whole weeks just to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that area of theology is probably the area where I have grown the most in the recent months. Uh, and we just felt and the elders felt, let's just take a whole series on that. So that's just want to give kind of a note on the whole series. With that said... Jumping into this this morning in the series, one of the things that I believe about every single person in this room, every single one of you, is you are a theologian. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? You are a theologian. Whether you believe it or acknowledge it, you're a theologian. Here's why. Uh, What a theologian is, what theology is, it's simply, theology is simply thinking about God and then expressing it in some way. So whether you're here this morning and you're a person who is skeptical of the Bible, maybe you're a person who's kind of detached from church or have been detached from church or, or you're even not quite sure what's in here, or whether you're here this morning and you've spent your life studying this book, you're a theologian. My children, my youngest child, up to the oldest person in this room, thinks about God in some way and they talk about it. And how we think about God is probably... There's nothing else that shapes your life more profoundly than that subject. So let's just stop and say, let's think about God. Let's think about how we should think about God. And ultimately, here's the thing I believe. Christianity is not about simply you and I obeying the rules. It's about the affections of your heart. God says, love me with all my heart, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what I have learned in life, whether the Bible or just in life, the things that we think most deeply about are the things that we feel most deeply about. So I want to push us in and challenge us to think and think deeply. Now, one of the things that I've learned about our culture, I'm in our culture, we're in our culture, is our culture generally grabs for easy, quick, bottom-shelf thinking, cliché. For example, I was in a conversation yesterday with someone in our community, and, and um, we were talking, they were talking. I began to discover real quick that I was kind of here, they were kind of here, we're in different positions. But what I was challenged by from both sides is we both just reached quickly for some answers and brought them in. And none of us were really thinking very deeply. 
So I want to challenge you to think deeply. C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that whole series. And he's kind of known for his children's writings. He's written a lot of other things too. Uh, passed away the same day JFK did. A little piece of trivia for you over in England. But he says this, For my own part, I tend to find doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Now, I'll let you determine whether you want a pipe in your teeth or not. But what he's saying there is oftentimes we think that the quick, easy way to connect with God is let's get the devotional stuff in. And he's pushing in and saying, I believe we would find a very different experience if we would engage ourselves with the deep, hard stuff. And really, let's think deep about this. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to push in and just think deep, challenge and process. And what does the Bible say about some of the basics? And, and why does it say that? Why do we believe that? And then how do we make it practical. This morning, this morning specifically, we're going to talk about this. The first kind of belief is the Bible. Why does the Bible exist? You ever ask yourself that? What is the purpose of this book? Why do we have it? That's going to be the question we're going to ask. Now, if you would maybe just, even in your own mind, just jot an answer or two down, or maybe if you'd walk around and poll people as they're leaving this morning or just head out into the, the streets and, and, and just ask people, Why, what's, what's this book? Or maybe you get on your smartphone and Google. There's a ton of research and, and, and street-level interview questions that have been done. And, and as I kind of went this week and looked at that, and just, okay, what do people generally say? What have I said? Here's what I hear a lot of. Okay, I wrote some of them down. The first one I hear is it's a rule book. Have you ever heard that? It's a list of do's and don'ts. It's, it's God's law. I've heard that. Um, I've, heard th- th- I've heard things about it gives encouragement or hope to my day. Uh, other people have said it teaches me how to live. It gives me help and, and help in my marriage, my kids, how to handle my money, and, and just general stuff. Now, some of those things are, are good, and there are benefits that come from this book. But is that the purpose of this book? See, this book is absolute truth. And one of the things that I find about absolute truth is sometimes we struggle with that in our culture. Uh, a guy that kind of came after C.S. Lewis, a guy by the name of Charles Colson. Some of you know Charles Colson. Uh, he was uh, with Richard Nixon. Maybe you were alive then or maybe you've just read about in a history book. Richard Nixon got in a lot of trouble with a thing called Watergate. And Richard Nixon was his chief, I believe he was his chief of staff, and so he went to jail. Richard Nixon did. Richard Nixon in jail began to read C.S. Lewis. And as he was reading C.S. Lewis, he began to realize, I'm a sinner. There's a God that loves me. To relate to him, I need Jesus. And he accepted Jesus as personal savior. And then Charles Colson began to live life in the vein of C.S. Lewis to think deeply and challenge other people to do so. And as he talks about the Bible specifically, and he talks about the authoritative word of God, the truth, here's one of the quotes that I pulled from his book, The Faith, if any of you have read that book. It says, when truth is abandoned... Therapy takes its place. We learn how to cope with our problems instead of curing them. Without truth, it, referring to life, resorts to being a patient, not a disciple. Let that sink in. Look at our, now he's not putting counseling down. I'm in, I go to counseling. He's not, it's not what this statement is about. The statement is about we have truth. We have truth. And so, therefore, life is not just about coping with our problems. It's about curing our problems. And it's not just about being a patient, but it's about being a disciple or follower 
of God. Now, as I think about the Bible, um, one of the things that I wrote down in my studies this week, I've kind of summed that up, and I just want to, we're going to unpack this thought. It's the Bible's primary purpose is to reveal how to be made right with the loving, holy, creator God of the universe. That's the point of this book. Now, a lot of other good things can come of it. Find encouragement and hope and hope for my marriage and help with my kids and help with my money. And that can all come out of it. But the ultimate ends of the Bible, the ultimate ends of the Bible is to relate to and connect with the loving, holy creator God of the universe. Now, that said, let's unpack this. If in your notes you see a little chart at the bottom, I'm going to start here. Um, if you would go to a seminary class or, or a Bible school and take a, and they would begin to talk about the Bible, there's a kind of a general place where we'd start. And that is, how does a person learn about God? And there are two general approaches that the Bible talks about. The first one, and this is, some of you are going to, don't, don't tune out on this. Some of this is important foundational stuff. The first one is natural or what we would call general revelation. Okay, so natural revelation. Now, what this is, the Bible talks about, the Bible basically says natural revelation is the ability to walk out into nature, to take nature in, and say, I learned some things about God here. So maybe have you ever heard someone say, I don't need the Bible, I have my tree stand and, and deer season, and I connect with God there. Or maybe someone said, I connect with God out at the shores of the ocean. Or I, that's very true. You learn a lot about God, and the scriptures talk about that just through nature. So that's one way to learn about it. There's a second form of learning about God, and that's special revelation. And we're going to talk about this in detail because that special revelation is ultimately what this is, the Bible. Okay, to unpack this in the chart, you'll see there's some verses. Now, I'm not going to draw attention to them all. I give them to you. They're in your, they're, they're in your bulletin. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 is kind of the classic verse on this. Um, Acts chapter 17 is a, is a verse that talks about when the apostle Paul walks into a group of people and he sees these inscriptions to the unknown God. And he's basically saying, hey, let me tell you about that unknown God. Because you as humans, he's saying, recognize that there's a power outside of yourself. And so that's, again, they're learning stuff from nature. The verses then from special revelation, again, we're going to look at um, one of those, John 5 this morning, but 2 Timothy 3.15, Romans chapter 10. Again, just want to give them to you for reference, maybe look at this week. Now, here's the real heart of this. Natural revelation is given to all, okay, so any person can walk out into the world and take something in. And it's intended for all. Special revelation isn't given to all, it's only given to a few. So we had Moses, you have Paul, you have Peter, you have these guys, John, who wrote down. They had specific things given to them, and they wrote it down, and then it's given to everyone. Now, here's kind of where the real implication of this comes. Natural revelation is sufficient, ultimately, only for condemnation. This is a really big deal. This is why the Bible is so important. Romans chapter 1 teaches that when a human being stands before God one day and God says, you know what? You cannot enter heaven with me. You're not going to spend eternity with me. You've got to go to a place called hell and be apart from me forever. And if the person looks back at God and says, God, 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 I didn't know. I didn't go to church. I wasn't raised in a family that went to church. I didn't read the Bible. Maybe, maybe you could even say, I didn't even know the Bible existed. Um, God, I grew up in a country, I grew up in a country that wasn't, the population wasn't like America where it's heavy Christian. I grew up in a country that was Muslim. God, I, and you have all these excuses. Romans chapter 1 teaches that natural revelation is there to reveal to us you're without excuse. God will say, I think, probably on that day, he'll say, 
did you look in at your human body? I mean, order doesn't just come out of chaos just like that. Did you not ever have that in peace inside of you as you looked out at the, at the globe and looked out at the universe and saw the big full moon or felt the waves crash? Didn't you ever have that peace inside of you that says, there's someone out there. There's something more to this. That's the point of natural revelation, to draw us outside of ourselves to say, there's something here, and then sends us on a mission. But all that something really does is point to there's someone powerful And it's really only good for God ultimately saying one day, you're without excuse. So that's what I mean by it's sufficient for condemnation. Now, special revelation, and you'll see this on your chart there in your notes, is sufficient for salvation. It's been given to us not just to condemn, not just to say there's a problem, not just to say there's a God and you're without excuse, but it's given to give us the hope. It's given us salvation. Um, General revelations, you walk out into the world and take in all of creation. It declares God's greatness. Romans chapter 1 clearly teaches that when you sense the power in nature, it says you know that God is great. Special revelation declares God's grace, ultimately. So that's natural revelation and special revelation. So we're going to unpack this morning and okay, so we can take God in in the world. We know we're without excuse. There's someone out there. Then he's given us this book as special revelation, the scriptures, to begin to learn about him. So that's the point of this. So let's unpack that now. And what I'd like to do, we're going to do this each week, is um, we're going to just put our, our church has a statement of faith. So we're going to put the statement up, and then we're going to unpack it. And then I'm going to try and make it very, very practical. But our statement of faith, if you've ever read it, and this is nothing new to ours, you're going to read this from churches for the last 2,000 years, have a statement generally like this. It says this, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant, infallible, written word of God. Now... You may feel like the little boy in the video. What, how many of us use the word infallible this week in your language? How many of you used your word or said to your kids, I'm inerrant? And what does that even mean? Now, I think inerrant we, and, and inspired. Inspired, most of us, I think, kind of generally get. We've said that's inspired leadership or that was an inspired speech or that's an inspired song. or We, we kind of get that. Uh, but let's just unpack some of these words. The word inerrant, if you go in dictionary.com, it's a simple word that means you kind of see it in there, error. It's inerrant without error. So we believe that the Bible, in its original form, Greek and Hebrew, not my NIV translation, but it's an original form, is without error. Infallible, go, go to dictionary.com, look up at fallible. It basically means absolutely trustworthy, completely true. You can trust it. It's an infallible means. Now, let's come back to the word inspired. Inspired comes from, um, here's what specifically inspired means. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, say with me together, is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So this teaches that from Genesis to Revelation, all of Scripture has been literally breathed out by God. Okay, now, we're going to talk in January. We have a series coming in January, and we couldn't get it all in this morning. Well, how did you get the 66? Some of you may have Catholic friends, and they've got a few extra in there. Some of you may have some Mormon friends, and they've got some different things in there. And you're like, well, how, why do we only have these 66? And we're going to talk about that more in January. But for now, what we do have and what's there is all Scripture is God-breathed. It's been inspired by God. Now, the next verse that really bears weight on this is 2 Peter 1, 20-21. It says, above all, 
you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though, say it with me together, though human, see where I'm at there, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it says they're human, but the Holy Spirit spoke through them. Now, so as the Holy Spirit spoke, here's what they, the Holy Spirit inspired them. Didn't just inspire a thought, he actually spoke to them. And as he spoke to them, they wrote. The thing that's really important is we believe that, he, that people weren't just dictating every word. Okay, God, God, hold on, hold on. Oh, I didn't get that. Oh, back up, back up. Okay, say that again, say that again. God would speak to them, and as he spoke through their own culture, their own understanding, their own level of education, all they spoke, wrote. So, for example, when you come to a letter like 1 John, John, John is simple. If you know Greek, John is simple Greek language. You come to Paul, he is not simple Greek language. It's, it gives seminary students fits at times. But 1 John, actually, when you go to seminary and you begin to study Greek, John, 1 John will be one of the first letters you begin to get through in Greek because it is simple. Because John was simple. But he was also very black and white. So when you read 1 John, it is black and white. You read other parts of Scripture, it's not as black and white. So God used the personality, used the gifts, used the human author, but yet made sure that it was spoken and ultimately it can be trusted, inspired by him. Now, that's kind of the foundation of how we got it. It's inspired, it's trusted, it's, it, it's, but again, come back to, come back to what is the purpose of it. What is the purpose? Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Again, Matthew, if you're new to the Bible, is in the New Testament. It's actually the first book of our New Testament. Or grab your smartphone and find it there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. This is going to capture Jesus in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of his well-known, probably one of the most well-known messages of all human history. Definitely Jesus' most well-known sermon. It was written by Matthew, who was a tax collector, a follower of Jesus, who was an eyewitness of Jesus and kind of wrote down what he heard Jesus say. Verse 17. And we're going to learn some things about the Bible. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, some of you have the NIV Bible there, but to what? Fulfill them. So he says, you've got this Old Testament scriptures. You've got the law and you've got the prophets. You've got all this stuff back here. And I'm coming not to get rid of it. I'm coming not to say, okay, we're done with that. Now let's have me. He says, no, no, no. I'm not doing that. I have come to fulfill. Very key. Now, very next verse. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything, not just a few things, everything is accomplished. So I love this verse because it teaches us that as those early prophets were writing, God was making sure that every stroke of across a T and every dot on an I was there. And it could be trusted and I'm going to hold on to it. And ultimately, he is going to fulfill and accomplish all of it. Now, look at verse 19 and the rest of it. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've hung around church at all, the Pharisees get a bum rap, don't they? We beat up on these guys. They were a bunch of guys who gave their attention to knowing the Old Testament, to knowing the law, to knowing the prophets. And they, gave, they worked their tails off to make sure they obeyed everything that it said. Now, Jesus comes along and says, I've come to fulfill that Old Testament law. And actually, don't get rid of it. You should actually live it. Live it out. And your righteousness should actually be better than that of the Pharisees. Now, with that said, turn to John chapter 5. He's going to talk to these Pharisees. John chapter 5. So flip just a few pages. You're in Matthew. Just go a few pages towards the back. He's now going to speak to the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not get rid of the law. And our righteousness, our goodness, our good deeds should actually be better than that of the guys who are given everything they have to obey that law. Verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. Talking about John the Baptist, this guy that came to prepare the way for Jesus. So Jesus says, I am actually got a testimony, a word that's even heavier and deeper than what John had. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Pause right there. So he says, you guys have studied the Old Testament law. Remember, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. You've studied it. You guys know it. And we're going to look at the next verse. But you don't have me, Jesus. So God's not with you. Look at verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. You have life with God. You think that these scriptures and obeying them and studying them are going to give you life. Yet, I'm sorry, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? I didn't come to do away with them. They actually speak forward. I've come to fulfill them. So all of Scripture is pointing to this man named Jesus, this Savior, the Son of God. And you, you have not embraced me. Instead, you just study the Scriptures and obey the Scriptures, thinking that because of that, you're going to have eternal life. One more verse. I think it will complete the loop for us. Hebrews, continue your New Testament. Again, page towards the back. You're going to see some larger books back there. Revelation, back up a little closer into the middle. You're going to see... Some books named Peter, you see James, and you're going to run into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 comes into this, and it's, it's writing all about the rest that God has promised. I have offered you rest. Spiritual rest, rest for your soul. It works through this whole discussion, but it says people have disobeyed, so they've not entered my rest. Verse 12 comes along then. Verse 12 is one of the most classic, that's probably the classic verses on the Bible, the Bible on the Bible. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. I want to pause right there. This book 
is not dusty and dry and a bunch of old history lessons. This book is alive and it's active. And Nick is going to say what it can do. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit joints and marks. So it can get in there and it can do some real surgery and work and slice things open. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, verse 13 is an interesting verse. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So it's this scripture, it says, is living, it's alive, it's active, and it's doing work, and it's cutting, and it's peeling, and it's pulling back the layers of the onion, and it's exposing. And as I engage with it, it's beginning to, it's beginning to expose in me my thoughts and my attitudes and things that are going on in my heart, and it's beginning to measure me and find me wanting. Now, here's where I got to in my studies on Wednesday. Wednesday is the day that I work my, t- I lock my door, shut my door, <laughs> don't take phone calls, try not to get into email, try to just, uh, my Wednesday is, it is the day to make sure that what's going to happen today is going to happen well. I study and pray and write and think and just try and get it out. Wednesday, I had an appointment, non-church related appointment, but appointment in the afternoon that I had to get to. I normally don't do this, but I scheduled at one o'clock. So I had to leave the office at around 1230. So I worked my tail off to get this thing done. And I worked and worked and got right to this point in my message on Wednesday. And I was pretty okay with it, so I kind of let it, let it sit. But I'll come back to it this afternoon. Go to the appointment. On the drive home from the appointment, and I got back into my office, I sit down at my desk, and my heart was distracted. My mind was off someplace else because of the appointment. My mind began to drift towards some hurt that I'm just journeying through and some, some experiences that I've had recently and some of the journey with my leg. and just uh, My mind is all over the place. And I keep trying to come back, come back, and I'm, I'm typing and deleting and writing and scribbling, and I, nothing is happening. So I think, okay, Adam, about half an hour this goes by that I, I am up against a deadline here, and I, we've got it. So I'm like, God, I've got to get through this. So I come into this room. I thought, okay, well, let's preach what I have so far. And basically what you've heard up to now, I kind of generally, that's what it was. And I began to teach. And as I'm standing on this stage with an empty room, it's kind of weird. I know <laughs> no one's in here and I'm preaching just like I am now. And I'm going through, you know, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus came to fulfill the law. God calls us to be righteous, even more righteous than the Pharisees. God calls us to live that law. John chapter 5, God says, as you live that law, that law should point you to Jesus. I then for some reason come to Hebrews and kind of completing kind of this cycle and I'm, I'm reading this, this reality that God's word exposes and opens me up and I'm realizing I fall short of that law. And I'm preaching this and I'm, I'm, I'm getting kind of amped up in this empty room and, and I hit the wall again. So I took a deep breath. I'm like, God, how do I end this message? So I read down through 14, 15, and 16. And what began to happen, I'm going to read these verses in a minute. It began to happen. I was standing almost right here. And as I hit 14, I began to feel my lip quivering. By the time I hit 15, I turned right here in this stage, dropped to my knees, and just sobbed. Because what I realized is the scriptures. The scriptures are given to point me to what it means to be made right with the loving, holy creator God 
of the universe. And when I began to realize what I was wrestling with earlier in the day was I sin. I blow it. I'm a pastor, sure. I'm a child of God, yes. I'm secure in that, absolutely. But I still do things I don't want to do and wish I hadn't done. And I feel that in that moment, and some of you relate to this, you feel in that moment you have this thing called guilt. And in that moment when you have guilt, I've been laid bare. The scriptures have opened me up. And when I have that guilt in me, I don't sense the peace with God. I don't feel his love. I know his love, but I don't feel his love. I don't feel his love because I've removed myself from his love because of the way I've been living. And so I'm like, how do I, and I'm reading this and I get to therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, because of this, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I stood up off the floor in my tears and I wiped my cheeks off and I thought, you know what? I'm hurting, Adam. God, thank you for that. But you know what? There's a lot of people who be sitting here on Sunday morning that are hurting too. If I can dispense one piece of hope, it's to help people see that these scriptures bring us to the life-saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because we cannot do it on our own. He calls us to a righteousness that far surpasses that of the religious leaders of his day. He says, you need to obey every single stroke of my pen and every single dot that I put above an eye. But we fail and we blow it. And he says, that's because I, the, all of this is pointing to as you fail and you blow it and you walk, it's pointing you to the grace and mercy of Jesus, who's a great high priest. A high priest is simply someone who closes down the gap between me and God who takes me into the throne room and presents. And so what I, here's the word picture that I had as I'm standing here and I stood back up on my knees and I began to declare it in this empty room on Wednesday and I want to do it now with a full room, is listen, here's what I hear, here's how I think this works. God is sitting in heaven. Jesus is right there with him. And this has been a long journey for me over the last couple months and I believe what God is doing is God is there listening to Jesus and Jesus is saying, hey, 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 God, God, do you see Adam? Do you see him? I want to speak on his behalf. He's come to me. He's placed his trust in me. He walks in a relationship with me. Do you see him? He's weak right now. God, I know what it is to be weak, and I speak for him. God, he's been tempted. God, I know what it is to be tempted, and I'm going to speak for him. And God, I am the high priest that's going to carry Adam wrapped in my arms into this throne room to speak with you. And God, as I carry him in, will you give him the strength and the help that he needs to get up off his feet and walk through the rest of his day? That is the point of the scriptures. That is the point of this book that we call Holy Bible. 
Yes, there are things to do in it, and we are called to do them. But as you do them, because that's how God ordered life to work, you're going to realize, oh, my goodness, I'm failing. It's going to keep pointing me back to the fulfillment of Jesus, my perfect righteousness. So I thought about that. The next verse, it immediately popped in my brain. Immediately jumped in my head, and I want to share this. It's a verse that I've gotten wrong the other side of this so often. It says this, 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's about a guy who is suffering, suffering far bigger than what I've ever known, a guy who's in jail for preaching Jesus, a guy who's facing certain death, and he's writing to a young man, Timothy, and saying, Timothy, carry the faith forward. And he says, this is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame because, Timothy, because, don't be ashamed, because I know, say it with me, Whom, whom I have believed. You know, for so many years of my Christian existence, for so many years in Bible school, for so many years as a young pastor, for so many years, it wasn't about who I believed. It was about what? What I believed. So I would read this verse. (laughs) That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet this this is no cause for shame because I know what I have believed, but what I have learned is what I believe. Facts on a paper do not give comfort in dark moments of the soul. I don't care about a bunch of facts on the paper and what I believe. You know who gives me comfort in the dark moment of the soul is a person, and his name is Jesus. And he says, come to me and receive rest and walk with me, trust me. And as you walk with me and as you trust me, you can, look, read the rest of it. I have believed and am confident that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, until that day. When I hear God say, well done. A good and faithful servant. Well done. You walk into my presence because you have embraced Jesus Christ and I look at you as righteous. It's not about what we believe. The Bible is not written to teach us what we believe. Sure, that'll happen. That'll come. And that's important. But the Bible's ultimately written to teach us about whom we should trust and who we walk through. And it is in those dark moments, in those hard times, and even in the good times, that we ultimately look to and embrace this person who we can trust. The longer I live, the more I realize it's who. What gets me through the self-doubt and the hard times is who, not what. I think it's interesting to me. (laughs) I can trust that person. I know that I can. The Bible can be trusted. This book can be trusted. It's alive. It brings Jesus to me. It's hard for me to fathom why it is then that I struggle like I do to set aside a measly 15 to 30 minutes to meet him here in the pages of this book at least one time a day. I got up off my knees on Wednesday. That was just my challenge. That's a challenge I leave with all of us. I believe in this room we want to connect. We know that life is found in a relationship with God. That the most important thing that you can solve in this planet and you can figure out in life is your relationship with the holy creator, loving God of the universe. And this book has been given to help us do that. So my challenge to us is let's spend time in it because we can trust it. It's without error. It's going to take me into that place of knowing Jesus, who 
who will ultimately bring me to the center of the glory of God. I'm going to close by watching a video. And then we're just going to end with prayer. Again, allow God to speak to you. As we wrap this video by John Piper, it's a pastor. He was a pastor in Minnesota. He's retired now, um, just travels and speaks. Again, watch this video as we kind of land uh, and kind of finish this up as we go to prayer. Intercessors interpose themselves to help fix something that isn't fixed or to keep something fixed that is fixed. The big issue is God's wrath. Now let's just get this real clear and real straight because I have the feeling we live in such a kind of touchy-feely day that Christianity is being so psychologized and so therapeutized that we really do believe this book was written for our mental health. It wasn't. It was written to help us get right with a wrathful God. God is one great massive fire of holiness. He hates sin and cannot abide it. We are little ant-like cinders of sin. And if we got within 10 trillion miles of this God, we'd be consumed. The problem in the universe is not our fragile marriages. The problem in the universe is not my failing health. The problem in the universe is not my wayward children. The problem in the universe is not the conflicts at work. The problem that the Bible was written to deal with is I have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed because I'm a sinner. And unless there is some kind of asbestos-like priest who can wrap me around with all he is and take me into the center of this fire, there's no hope for me at all. That's what the Bible is about. Now there are some spin-offs for our mental health and our marriages and our kids and our jobs, but those are just spin-offs, folks. And if everything went wrong and this got right, you would leap for joy forever and ever and ever. Because God is the main issue. Life is very short. Sin is very horrid. And salvation is so needed. So, the first implication of saying that my salvation depends upon eternal intercession is that there must be something about God and me that can't get along. And it's sin. God's holiness and my sin. And I have to have a priest. Until you get this straight in your head, Hebrews is a closed book. All this mumbo-jumbo about Melchizedek. You remember back in chapter 5 when he said, I have much to tell you about Melchizedek, and you are dull of hearing, and you can't get it. You know what they couldn't get? Sin, holiness, and priesthood. That's, that's the universe. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Wrath burning against sin. And there's a priesthood. 
to solve it. That's, that's what the Bible is about. Don't let the Bible become trivialized for you down into a little self-help book that makes your life just a little better this week. Stand like a rock on a rock that the Bible's got a message about the big issues of life. Namely, whether you're going to live forever inside the fire of the glory of God so wrapped in asbestos righteousness from Jesus that you can enjoy it forever. That's what I'm looking forward to. Right into the center of the throne that is aflame with glory. Let's just pray together. Holy Father, uh, we thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you love us so much that even while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus to die. You sent him that he would come and he would take upon himself our sin and he would face your wrath on that cross. Lord, may we never lose sight of that. May our hearts forever rejoice at the fact that we have been reconciled to you, that you have made us new. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has yet to come to that understanding, to place their faith in Jesus, uh, I pray that this morning would be the morning. I pray for those of us that have been walking with you for some time. I pray that we would never forget, that we would continually uh, put one foot in front of the other, that we would walk in faith, and that you would work in us, uh, be restoring those around us, Uh, through your love, through your mercy, and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.